Hi again, and welcome to the highlights for season two of this podcast. Man, this was a, a fun season to put together, and we really appreciate all the nice feedback. We did not start out with a coherent plan. That's pretty typical. Uh, it just worked out that this season featured some of my favorite people, old friends, telling stories, sharing insights and wisdom. People like Cheryl Crow, Matthew McConaughey, Clinton Kelly, Eddie George, Kirk Herbstreet and the Bear, Chris Felica, Mike Tirico, Mike Mills, Brian Koppelman, Bob Woodruff. We had fun throughout. It was a challenge to listen to all these episodes and pick out just these highlights. But I think you're going to enjoy it. Any one of those folks could have been in the lead-off position. But we went with Mr. McConaughey and the art of living. His stories and wisdom and revelations and prescriptions and confessions and adventures are truly unique. He talked about a solo trip down the Amazon when he was at a crossroads in his life and had a very profound experience alone in the jungle. It was about day 12, actually. And no, that was, um, that was, there was nothing outside of my body. If anything, it was a purge of getting mm -hmm. everything out. And there was no, there was no ayahuasca, no peyote involved in it. It was me and me, um, 12 days into a trip. That was a solo journey of my own. And, a trip that the first 12 days, I was not enjoying my company. I was not able to be present. I didn't like where my mind was going. I was feeling guilt. I was feeling shame. I was feeling like sins of action, sins of the mind. Uh, I, I, I didn't know where I was going in life or, 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 or what my track was. Um, my mind was in, in, in a low place. And again, I felt like that was okay. Endure this, endure this. And I put myself in a place so far out that I didn't have like the Australian gym. I didn't have the parachute to pull. I was out there and I was like, no, you're going to, you're, you're going to sweat this out and you're going to go through this in about day 12. And this has happened to me multiple times about day 12. I wake up and I have a purge. I've, I've, I've thrown up. I've gotten rid of every talisman that I, that defined me. I wake up and I go for this walk and I'm feeling present for the first time. And all of a sudden I'm seeing the light and I'm forgiving myself for certain things. I should forgive myself. I've, I've shaken hands with myself about things. Hey, buck stops here on that. We're not going to keep doing that one. We're changing. We're going to evolve as a, as a young man. And I came across that story, that, that, that whole huge blue neon blue floor on the jungle floor, which when it moved, turned out to be tens of thousands of butterflies. And that's when I first found the Amazon. That's when I went for that swim in the Amazon to go put myself in the place that I, that was actually in that 11 second dream I had, which I had now had for the second time, which is what got me to Peru. Um, and the rest of that trip, the next, say they're 22 days, the next 10 days were glorious. I was present. I was being fair with myself. I had forgiven myself. I was seeing the beauty all around me. Everything I wanted was what I could see and what I could see was right in front of me. It was simple. I was present. People call it Zen, whatever. I had found that. Learn some lessons there about we got to put ourselves in a position to hear the truth cross us. It's hard with all the stimuli and frequency all around us all the time. When can you, when can you have you give yourself a little forced winter of quiet solitude where you may not like the company and that's good because hang in there until you do like the company because there's only one SOB we can't get rid of us. <laughs> there's only, you're the only person we can't, we, you know, there's only one person that we're like, well, I'm, I'm stuck with you. 
no matter what. And so that's what that that's happened on that trip. And then it happened again three years later when I had the exact same dream again and went off to Africa. Ah, yes. There's also in the episode the story about Matthew's trip to Mali and the wrestling match against the village champion. And I've thought about what Matthew says is the moral of that story a lot since we recorded the episode. And he says that if you rise to meet a significant challenge, you've already won. The outcome doesn't matter. Rising to meet the challenge is a victory in and of itself. I like that a lot. We also talked about his film career and a lesson that Matthew had to learn the hard way early on. There's a great story in there about how I embarrassed myself from lack of preparation um, and did not prepare for a scene on purpose, thinking my bright idea was that I am nothing but an instinctual, instinctual actor. I don't need to study the lines. <laughs> my career started in Days Confused, and I just improv all that shit, man. Here, let's do it again. Eh, not when you got a four-page monologue in Spanish put in front of you that you didn't know was going to be there. Oh, geez, oh, man. I remember the bead of sweat going on the back of my neck going, oh, my God. You said you took a 12-minute walk and prep. Did you really come back and know that shit in 12 minutes in Spanish? Hell no. <laughs> you don't no. put that part in there. I mean, 12 minutes. I remember I seen 12 minutes. Can I get 12 minutes? My mind thinking, oh, that's enough time not to be inconsiderate to the crew who's ready to go, but maybe it's also enough time to learn a four-page monologue in Spanish because, hey, I took Spanish for a semester in the 11th grade. Well, look, it was not true. No, I came back, and I don't know what kind of hacked-up Spanglish crap I did, but I did something, and it embarrassed the hell out of me. And I said, I never want to feel that again. And from that day on, I learned that value of preparation. And now I try to come in, you know, even in preparation, if I get, like, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm like, well, man, maybe you need to look at it an even more different way because I don't want I want to go into, I don't know about you, but I want to go to the set every day having the right kind of butterflies hmm. going, all right, man, I'm, 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 I'm catching my breath here. This is good. I don't want to feel like, dude, whatever, I got it. Uh, we know each other basically through Texas football. Um, yeah. First met at, at, a, at a Longhorn game. Game day was there. There's one memorable game where Texas – beats Nebraska. It's a top five showdown. It's a, it's a massive party in Austin. Uh, we got done with our work. We were invited to join you at a, a saloon of your choosing in downtown Austin to begin the post-game celebration, which we did. But then they said, you don't have to go home, but you got to get out of here. You, you graciously invited us to continue the party along with others at your house. We saw a yellow light, and, which the yellow light was responsibility and an early flight. And I don't know, I'm not a man of regrets, but damn. I mean, had we had seen a green light there, that was the infamous beginning of the 32-and-a-half-hour bender that ended with the story that all of America knows, man. <laughs> yes. So it wasn't that night that I decided to uh, get neck and play congas in my birthday suit. It even wasn't the next night. It was 2.36 a.m. the Monday morning. And I had not gone down yet. I was still celebrating our great victory when I decided to make some music with myself and wind on down, figured it was time to lay it on down and get some sleep. But before so, let me have a good jam session. Well, I had left a window open. A neighbor heard it, called the cops. They came in. I resisted pretty heavily. And yes, that was... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, we would def definitely not have hung around to the next night, the next night, the next morning. But I mean, I was like, part of me wanted to say, damn, I was there at the be at least at the beginning. <laughs> oh, that was a fun 74 minutes with Matthew 
Lots of stories, including, of course, the naked Congo story when I did not see one of life's green lights to quote Matthew's book title uh, and chose to exercise prudence. And you can tell I regret it a little bit. Now, my colleague of 25 college football seasons, if you can believe that, Kirk Herbstreet, was also there in the early stages of McConaughey's Naked Congos night, also peeled away, of course. But Kirk and the bear, Chris Felica, got together for episode one of the season to relive stories from 400 fall Saturdays together. It's incredible, including Kirk's first year on game day and what should have been a celebratory return to Ohio State, but almost never happened. The, the, the only memory I have is waking up Saturday morning, fourth week of my career, and being terrified that I'd been out way too late and, and you made me have way too many drinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I couldn't really, I was just like, I don't even want to go. I'm good. Like I was not going to go. <laughs> just going to skip. I'm good. Tell the truth. Allison rescued you, man. One of the great careers in sports broadcasting almost got like cut short in week four of year one. Listen to this. I somehow bang. I make it into the ROTC building next to, next to St. John's arena. You guys have no idea what's going on. I have my sunglasses on. I had some idea. I had some idea. (laughs) But you're going, you know, you and Vec are arguing about something and I'm, I'm, my stomach is like not feeling good. And I'm trying to like, keep it together, trying not to get fired just because of the way I am in the meeting. So I'm just, holding on for dear life going through this little production meeting before our show starts on Saturday. And in the middle of it ran down the hallway (laughs) and just got sick really bad for a long time. And I was pale white. Like I was banged up. I had Bama Dave bring me, he he brought me a, uh, Bama Dave's one of the guys on our crew at game day. He, He was worried about me. He brought this trash can for me and he put it just to the left of my seat during the show. So if I have to vomit during the show, at least I had a trash can to turn my head over to and, and throw up uh, during the show. Thank God the show was an hour back then. Thank God you Thank made God it through. God total pro, <laughs> total pro. Kirk, you remember the first time we swung the camera around and like the bear is now an icon, but but yeah. he was a, a, a valuable part of the team, but not in front of the camera. Was it your idea? We, all of a sudden we were sitting over yeah. there and we're like, there's a I lull or something. I spin a camera around. Show, it was his calves. I wanted to show <laughs> Bear's calves. <laughs> like Jim Wait a minute. That, that, that was the whole impetus for you? Let, let's show his calves? Not, oh not, not, not his pick calves, his brain? His calves are like that big. And he had shorts on. And I, t- I, you know, that's when we used to just, a lot of times with fitting in the chair, we'd get off the rails. And he loved it. He encouraged it. So I hit talk back and I was like, you got to, you got to get the camera on bears calves. I'm going to say something. He goes, Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> so they swing the camera over to his calves. And I just start talking about bears calves. And I'm just like, look at this. Look I didn't know. Sport. I forgot about the calves part bear. I knew, I knew we, I thought we were going to talk some football, but then for, think about from one calf cutaway comes the empire. That is the, is the it, it, exactly. I, I, it's, it's the, the former offensive lineman in me. Now, Kirk, Bear, and I also spoke plenty about our dear friend, my colleague in college game day for 25 years, Lee Corso. 
Now, coming up, there is the blooper for the ages in Houston, but also the story of how Lee recovered from a stroke. Somehow, after being robbed of the ability to speak in spring of 2009, after arduous work in three and a half months, he was ready for the season debut of game day that fall. It's a really powerful moment. And we, we, we all have such you know, deep love and affection for him and respect for him, learned so much from him. When he had the stroke, I thought that was one of the most courageous things that anybody's done. A guy who, who spoke so effortlessly. He, it was so natural. And he was such a great uh, ad-libber. And to be robbed of that, and our, the first show back after his stroke, and this wasn't that many months, and he had gone to speech therapy that he says is the hardest thing he's ever had to do to relearn how to speak. And we weren't sure if the gears were going to mesh when the light went on. And the, the season debut of the show was in Atlanta, and we're outside, and there's a big crowd around. And I think all of us were so anxious and holding our breath. And how is this going to go for him? Is he going to be uncomfortable? Is he going to be uh, able to get the words out? And, and, that was, I think, a two-hour show at that point. And the fact that he was able to, to get through that, and it got better and better from, from that point on that year. Uh, God, I just remember the tension, Kirk. You know, just loving this guy so much and just hoping things were going to go okay. Yeah, totally. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I, I, I mean, really, to me, when he had his stroke and he was determined, nobody was like, are you sure you're okay? And he, he wouldn't let anybody stop him from getting back to that show and his motivation was his love for that job, his love for that show, his love for the sport and what he had become, you know, within the sport. And he was not going to be slowed down. People ask the town, I'll tell the story about LC in Houston and the F-bomb. Yeah, <laughs> at, at this point, you know, it's well established. He's going to put the headgear on and pick the team. And at this point, Kirk, he had already was he had already perfected the fake left go right thing. So he was going to build up one team and then pick the other team. SMU's got no chance in this. I mean, there, there's no way they're going to win in Houston. The Cougars had a great team; they're scoring 50 points a game, uh, and and they weren't going to stop him. But he tried to build up SMU, and he was looking look at that red, white, and blue. Look at that SMU. Look at that. What a team! What and, and he was trying to kind of take the audience in one direction. The director wasn't getting it. And he's a great director, but he wasn't cutting all the things that Lee was talking. He wasn't building up SMU. So there was that. And that's what kind of frustrated him. And he finally figured enough of this ruse. And that's when he just said, fuck it. Give me that Houston. And he, he put on the Houston hat and Carl Lewis was the guest picker. there, kind of falling over. And, um, I put my head down. You shoved your chair away. You, 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 you instinctively, you had to distance yourself. I didn't even know what I, I, I think I threw a pen in the air. Or I, I remember Carl Lewis going, he leaned over in the midst of that chaos. And he goes to me, he's like, he looked at me, he's like, good thing we're on delay. And I was like, no, we're not. <laughs> the, yeah, you looked, you, you looked at the mascot, you looked, you looked, you opened the cougar's mouth yeah. and like looked in there. I mean, it was very, I mean, all of us, you, you know, something like that is, is, like possible on live television, but that had never happened before. So it was kind of the, the funny right? You're the sitting back there into that is crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the best part of it. When we were, we had about like a seven-hour flight to to Eugene for USC Oregon that night. That that's the best part of the story when we get to Eugene, Kirk. Yeah, we we land in Eugene. For, well, first of all, ESPN makes him uh, issue an apology. <laughs> how, how did that go? <laughs> 
Lee Fitting comes out. Everyone's high. You know, at the end of a game day, we're always like, good show. That was fun. That was fun. Good job. And then Fitting comes out. He's like, coach, good job. That was great. Hey, listen, real quick. Hey, uh, he, he, he kind of said, he goes, what, 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 what happened? What, what are you doing? He goes, well, you, you, you said the F word. He goes, so what? He goes, hey, well, I can't really say that on TV. So we've written out this three sentences, just say your apology and let's look into the camera. He goes, oh, okay, no problem. He looks into the camera. He's like, earlier today on college game day, I said something I shouldn't have. For that reason, I'm very, very sorry. And he does like, we're doing, like we're doing a Coke commercial. Like he does like his Home, home Depot. Smile. You know, and, and we're all, he's just so innocent with this. We're like, coach, that was great. That was great. Good, good, good. On the back end this time, how about we just don't smile? How about we just kind of look, you know, just look at the camera? He's like, okay, good, 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 good. You know, so he does that. Or we get through that. By now, all of America's, you know, Googling Lee Corso, F-bomb and all this. And we fly, we fly all the way out to Eugene. We land. As soon as our plan the USC, a good USC Pete Carroll team against Oregon and Chip Kelly. We get out of the uh, plane, go into the FBO, stop in, use a quick bathroom. And as we're coming out, this guy looks like he's dry, like a driver says, Hey, um, do you, do you mind if Phil Knight says hello uh, real quick? He's, he's on his way over. He just landed. He's on his way. Cause we saw his plane when we landed and we didn't realize he was there. So he's, yeah, he wants to say hello real quick. Yeah. Cause we'd met him a few times on game day. No problem. So as we're walking out to get to our car, Phil Knight's big RV, he comes jogging down the stairs. You can see him. He comes jogging over to us, and he's like – he high-fives me, and he's like, man, Lee Corso, I can't believe that SOB. He's my hero. I can't – oh, man, what was, what happened? Tell me. Man. I mean, he wanted to sit there and hear all about it. He was so, like, fired up, you know, and then I'm like, man, I thought, you know. Everyone was like, because before we got to there, everyone was like, he might be, is he going to get suspended? You know, would they fire him? Oh, you know, that's the, all the talk. Then we, then we drive to the stadium. We get in there. Lane, Kiff, it was Lane Kiffin, actually, yeah. at USC. Yeah. He comes over. He says something to me about, man, Corso, I can't believe him. And then Chip Kelly literally is at the other <laughs> end of the stadium. He sees me at the other 20 walking towards the 50. I'm talking white visor, all black outfit, full sprint over to me and Darren to like high five us and tackle us. And he wants to hear about it. I'm just like, Lee Corso is the only guy that can say the F-bomb and his, his Q rating goes up. Kirk and the Bear and I could have sat around for three, four hours and told stories. There is so much in the episode. If you've enjoyed college game day at all over the years, I think you'll enjoy going along for the ride. Also, I should tell you that Kirk has a new book coming out, Out of the Pocket. Very good. Very powerful read. Now, almost as important to me throughout my life as the power of sports has been the power of music. I love this topic, and I love visiting with a musical legend and dear friend, Cheryl Crow. We talked a lot about her life and her career, but also about the power of music to connect us, unite us, inspire us, heal us and transport us back to a very specific time and place. Well, my kids say I was born in the Jurassic period, and that probably <laughs> to them is true. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. I think about that, and I think, are my kids going to have that same relationship when they hear, like, a Post Malone song, song where they can actually, you know, it, it completely envision where where they were when they heard it. For me, like, I can hear Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty, and I can smell 
Mike Brown's bucket seats in his Monte Carlo, <laughs> you know, and I can envision uh, sitting at the Dairy Queen hot August night, right? Um, I can hear Want to Be Your Lover by Prince and thinking I was listening to like porn um, at a track meet in, uh, you know, when I was a freshman in high school, you know, Want to Be Your Lover was, I mean, that was risque. I mean, it's nothing like WAP, you know, which I'm trying to like keep my kids from seeing um, or hearing. And yeah, music, I, I, I think about it um, a lot when I, I think about Carlos Santana in a hotel lobby once saying, you know, watch your show, girl, you really know how to, or you really change the molecules in the room. And I've always thought about that because I do think that music is a physical experience where, you know, all the science and all the studies they've done around meditation and around music and how it changes the shape of the cell um, and how it can create a physical uh uh, really a, a physical reaction. And I, I do believe that. I, I want to go to the Michael Jackson thing because it's amazing that that was your, that was your first record. And then you began to sort of experience the power of music on this incredibly large scale mm-hmm. when you're singing back up on that tour and, and, and singing, um, I just can't stop loving you, a duet where now the focus is on you and Michael and your 75,000 faces are right there singing and there's a girl from Kennett, Missouri, kind of experiencing this. I think it was your, probably your first time abroad, right? And here you are in front of yeah. all these people. I mean, I had to actually I mean, what did that get, feel like? I had to get a passport. I mean, I'd never been out of the country. In fact, I had really, I was a school teacher before that. And I basically was like, okay, I'm going to go to LA or I'm going to go to New York. LA seems nicer. I'm going to go there. And um, I crashed the audition, long story short. Um, and I wound up getting it. And you know, that's an interesting thing, too, because I feel like what I witnessed with Michael um, and the power of music was so much bigger. Um, and also having watched him since he was younger than me. I mean, he was five and six years old when you would sing him, see him on, um, you know, uh, TV variety shows, singing these like Frank Sinatra songs, you know, and singing Ben and then doing this incredible R&B that we all grew up with. And then I went up singing with him and to watch how people would just lose their shit. I mean, it was like they were witnessing a deity, you know, and there's something, I, I guess that's a whole other show, but that's, it's, it's so weird to see. It was a little bit like watching what was going on with the Beatles, you know, all that old footage of people passing out and girls crying. And, but the thing that was interesting to me was standing behind him and seeing, you could just see in him that fragile little guy who was so damaged. But then when he would step into something bigger than him, you just could feel like, okay, there's a difference between ego and the divinity. And, and the art part of it certainly... I mean, if you believe in God or something bigger, that's where that comes in. And that's where all those people, 75,000 strangers are just wrapped up in the molecular thing that Carlos Santana talks about, you know, and um, and they come away from that feeling changed. And that 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 for me was an incredible thing to witness. Um, I mean, I'll never know what that's like to have my whole life be based on on that, uh, being a small child and being so famous. Um, but watching that was a, was powerful for me as seeing what, what music can be and 
and and and how it can wield a lot of uh, emotion and power and strength. Yeah, I mean, powerful, intoxicating, inspiring, a cautionary tale, I'm sure as well. It's kind of the whole package. So when you are now playing your own songs and you are in the spotlight and their faces are looking at you and singing back words that you wrote on a bass in some lonely time and place years ago, and it's different generations that are doing it. I mean, for those of us that will never know what that's like, you're doing a job up there. You got to play the song, but do you ever just allow yourself to take all that in? Chris, it's interesting watching all those men out there crying and, out <laughs> and fainting. Head. Yes. <laughs> fainting. Throwing underwear on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Throwing their underwear. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, it's different when you're a girl rock star, you don't get the perks that the guys get. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a time uh, early out, early on when I really was feeling pretty burnout that I couldn't see the audience as being a sort of a benevolent being, you know, I always felt like the critics were after me and, mm. uh, and then I wound up being diagnosed with breast cancer and it totally reset everything. I wanted to, I wanted it. I wanted the lights on all the time. I wanted to make contact with people and their faces and their eyes and their stories and, um, you know, there, there is a, a really odd thing that happens when, when you have a hit song and you travel to other countries where they don't even speak your language, language like Japan or whatever, and you see them doing their best to sing along, they know the words in a totally different language and just how it's not like anything you can ever measure as a kid as to what you perceive success would be like, you know, like to me, I did pour over rumors and I did get my hair cut in a total shag. And I was like intrigued with Stevie Nicks, maybe being a witch. And, you know, <laughs> I, I got the shawls and I wanted to be that, you know, and that was to me, it wasn't, I didn't envision like the audience. I always envisioned me as her. It's a different thing when you're on stage and there are nights where you feel overwhelmed with the energy that's coming back at you. And then there are other nights where you feel like this is a job and am I in this and I don't want to shortchange anybody, you know? Um, I think after breast cancer and kind of rebooting my life and who I was and who I saw myself as, I could really feel the enjoyment of going out and sharing as opposed to having to deliver. It's not every day you and artists talk about that kind of thing with such candor. And I really appreciated the time that Cheryl gave us. It was just pure enjoyment to record that episode. By the way, Cheryl has a new recording out live at the Ryman, the legendary auditorium in Nashville. So check that out. Next up, one of our most listened to episodes, Reinvention. That's because of the two tremendous guests, football legend Eddie George and TV host, style icon, Clinton Kelly. Now they have very different backgrounds, but each of them shared some very smart ideas on reinventing yourself, pivoting in life, something that so many of us are facing these days, being forced to ask tough questions like, is this still what I want? Or an even bigger question, who am I? That's what Eddie wondered the moment he realized his great career was over, when he was kicked out of a Dallas Cowboys practice by Bill Parcells as a member of the scout team. Oh, well, it felt um, like I was in a twilight zone a little bit because what I've known for so long, how I prepared for each season, how I 
um, got my mind right for my training and the different phases of getting ready for NFL season or football season. I've been doing it my entire life up to that point. And I was 31. And um, when I, once I realized that, that my playing days were done, it was, it was a, a gut-wrenching feeling. I mean, I saved my money. I had a roof up on my head. I wasn't fearful in that regard of, of, of being financially broke. But it was like, well, damn, you know, what's next? Or really, you know, who am I? Well, it turns out the former football star is also a pretty talented actor. He got the bug attending some Shakespearean plays. And after some embarrassing experiences trying to adjust to a new career, he got good reviews playing some very serious parts. And then a lightning bolt moment when he caught a live performance of the musical Chicago. So I go... I'm in the audience and I'm familiar with the songs. Like, okay, this is kind of fun. And then it was time for Billy Flynn to come, you know, and the girls come out and says, We want Billy. Give us Billy. This is the great opening, right? And he hits the stage, comes out, does his deal, does his song, all I care about is love, does the scenes. I was like, oh man, that I said that now that looks like fun. You know, I said, now that's, I, one day I'm going to do that. So she hears me. She's like, interesting. She says, well, can you sing? Well, I took singing lessons before, so yeah, I can sing. I'll figure it out. She says, well, I'm going to call the Weislers in New York and get you an audition. I said, okay, you do that. And lo and behold, two weeks later, she calls me back. She says, Eddie, I got you an audition for, um, to play the role of Billy Finley York for the Weislers. I'm like, really, when is it? She says, in two weeks. I'm like, oh, shit. I hadn't studied. I hadn't worked on my voice in over uh, maybe five or six months. So I'm panicked, but i got to take this opportunity. So I work on the songs. I get with my acting coach. We listen to the music. I'm doing everything I can. I go up there in November of 2014. I get my best suit, Chris. I get my, 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 my top hat. I got my, my suit on. I go in there as Billy Flynn. I go into the Ambassador Theater. I walk out in an empty stage in an empty theater. The lights on me and total darkness. And I'm like, holy shit, I am really intimidated. I'm thinking of all the great actors that were on this stage. Like, I I don't belong here. You know, like uh, Usher was on the stage, you know, just going down the list of who played this role. And it's intimidating to me. And, I'm, and I have to sing. And I'm like, all right, just whatever you do is going to be a great story, whether I get it or not. So the piano player comes out. He's very professional. He was warming up, you know, doing his thing. And I'm thinking, should I be doing the same things here? <laughs> so I just sit back. I wait till he's done. He's all right, Mr. George, we're going to start at the top. All I care about is love. What key are you in? And I said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I said, he says, you pick and pick one. We'll figure it out. <laughs> So we figure out my key, we warm up, and I just have a good time. I'm cracking notes everywhere. I'm I'm just laying it all out there and just doing what I have to do. And unbeknownst to me, Barry Weissner, the lead producer, was in the audience. He was like way in the back. And we're done about 30 minutes. We go through the whole thing. He comes down, center aisles like this. Oh my God, that was magnificent. Let's do it. I'm like, really? Really? 
you're going to be on Broadway. And that's how I got to Broadway. Every night it must have been close to the feeling yeah. of being in the tunnel, running out on a field when, when you're in the wings. So that the tunnel and the wings of the theater had to be a little bit familiar to you just before oh, that, yeah. that live juice is going. No, without a doubt. Opening night was was magical because I'm underneath the the stage and it's like literally being shot out of the cannon, the energy just waiting. And it's like, oh, my God. And that's where the fear really comes in because you're like, oh, my God. Okay. I just pray to God, one, that I make it up the stairs clean. Two, I don't forget my fucking words. That's the game. Because rehearsal is one thing. The line deal is completely different. (laughs) You just think of everything. Okay, get down the stairs clean. And now let it go. You know, it's it's compare that to the Super Bowl. Compare opening night on Broadway to that feeling of because the Super Bowl has brought accomplished, brilliant Hall of Famers, made them shake in their boots. What was it like? How how would you make the the comparison? Very, very similar. Uh, You know, the energy, the nerves, because that's that's the that's the granddaddy of them all, the Super Bowl, and and um and, and going into that knowing that all eyes are on. All the celebrities, um, every everybody around the world is watching this one game, and you have sixty minutes to show what you can do. And the same holds true on Broadway. Every night, you have people from all over the world, from China, London, um, Japan, uh, South America. Every single night, there's somebody from around the world coming to look at this show. Uh, and there are critics in the audience, so there's a lot of pressure on you. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, they're going to come see what a football player is doing on this stage. And if he had, can, actually has the chops to do it. So it's very similar. The energy every night, every, every single night in every performance on Broadway is definitely like the Super Bowl. Now, since we recorded the episode, Eddie pivoted again back to football. He's the new head coach of the Tennessee State Tigers, and they'll play their home games in the same stadium where Eddie starred for the Titans for all those years. So certainly wishing him the best in his debut season. But I also think that because of his passion for acting, his career on the stage isn't quite over yet. Now, the whole idea for this reinvention episode came from conversations with Clinton Kelly. Clinton is a dear friend for 20-some years. He and my wife, Jennifer, are the best of friends. But I still learned a lot about Clinton and his ideas on reinventing himself and facing fear, fear of the unknown, fear of the unfamiliar. I think that knowing what you want um, and having a plan on how to get it is really powerful. I think that you have to like really ask yourself, what do I want from life? Am I even close to achieving that? And if not, how can I get there? And so then you have to ask yourself, are all of my behaviors serving that purpose? Like, are they moving me toward that goal or are they moving me away from that goal? And I felt like, I am slowly feeling my goals slipping away from me because I just am afraid. Like that's what it boils down to. It's like, you know, people change for, you know, people don't change. I would say for two reasons. Like one is you don't change if you're happy. Like if you just love your life the way it is, there's really no reason to change. Right. And then I think the other reason people don't change is that like, they're afraid. They're literally afraid of change. And that is a very human response to change. Like we are wired 
to keep the status quo. Like that's what our egos want for us. Like do not change. If things change, you might die. Um, and so that's why a lot of us are just terrified of change. That's the thing that most people could do pretty easily is just find one baby step that you could take to move you closer to the dream of the you that you want to be one baby step and see what happens. Like, and I always play this. Oh, here's another, this is the thing that I love. I'm sorry, Chris, I'm just rambling on here. Luckily you have an editor. I always play a little game with myself, which is what's the best thing that could happen. What's the worst thing that could happen. Okay. That's, it's pretty much a methodology that I use every day of my life to, to a certain degree. Like when I, whenever I'm pushing myself to do something uh, I haven't done before, what's the best thing that could happen? That when you say hello to a stranger, you might make a best friend, you know, um, what's the worst thing that can happen when you say hello to a stranger, they tell you to, you know, screw off. Um, you know, I don't want to talk to you. Generally what happens is something in the middle, like every time something in the middle is going to happen. Like maybe you'll just have a boring interaction where they say, hi, you say, hi, you part ways, but that's the beauty of life. Like the things on the extreme really, really rarely happen. So do you, this, this is something you've carried on, whether or not it's a question much later in life, after you've overcome your shyness, you know, should I start a fashion line? Should I take this TV opportunity? Should I say no to this public appearance? Do you have this conversation? What's the best and worst every time? I have that all the time. I, I, that's what's the best and what's the worst is basically how I live my entire life. Like what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay. Well, that's probably not going to happen. What's the best thing that can happen? Well, that's probably not going to happen either, but you know, I'm pretty comfortable with all the stuff in the middle. So many people have gone through upheaval. It's not just the planet. It's within workplaces, within households of all sorts in the last year or so. And so many people, Clinton, have had not just doors closed, but doors slammed in their face. And they can no longer go through that one. They have to stand in there in, in the corridor and figure out how to open a new door and what that door is going to look like and feel like and where that next door leads to. What, what, what advice would you have for people that, that are, are forced to make changes and very uncomfortable or anxious about that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we're living through an unprecedented time, and at least in modern history. Um, like, yeah, people, a lot of people are going through a really, really tough time. And it's easy to say, like, just make a pivot and you'll, you know, you'll, uh, your whole life will change um, with the pandemic going on. So, you know, there's that, but, um, you know, I think that now is a good time for people to take stock of how they would like to reemerge from this. You know, like if you've got a little bit of downtime, you know, take out a, a notebook and grab a pen and just write on the top of the page, what do I want my life to look like post pandemic? And then really just create this vision of yourself in your new life, and then on the next page, maybe the next day or a few days later, just ask yourself, what little steps can I take to get there? You know, um, because this is going to end at some point. And it's a perfect opportunity for you to say to yourself, you know, everything that I did pre-pandemic is doesn't work for me anymore. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have a different outlook. And the thing is, nobody's gonna be paying attention to you and the changes that you made after the pandemic, right? It's a perfect opportunity for you to make some sly changes that can sort of slip under the radar. Everybody's gonna be like going through their own changes, going to be reemerging in their own way, being excited about that, that you're just gonna be able to sort of do whatever it is that you wanna do. So take advantage of the opportunities that will come to you eventually, even if you don't have them right now. But I would say right now, be as creative as you possibly can. If a door is slammed in your face, you know, either you, you break down the door or you cut a hole in the wall next to the door to get into the door. You know, like you have to say to yourself, like, just because somebody says, no, you can't do this. 
that doesn't mean that you can't do this. Like you're letting other people have too much control over you. If they have told you, you can't do this and you have agreed with them, like you basically relinquish all of your control over your life over to, the, over to another person. Before we wrap, is there a mic drop moment or a statement you want to make about reinvention as someone that's gone through it so, so successfully yourself and helped so many other people do it? Um, a way to, to, to sum up the messaging? Get to the bottom of your fear. Really ask yourself, what are you afraid of? Do I want to be afraid of this anymore? And then take steps not to be afraid of it. I think that's, that's what it boils down to. Like tackle the fear, beat the crap out of it. You know, look it in the eye. Be like, you're ugly. Um, <laughs> and you're not going to have any control over me. I think that's, that's, that's the biggest thing. Like get in touch with your fear. Oh, I have a, I know. Maybe I have something more profound to say. That's pretty good. Are you afraid of dying or are you, how about this, Chris? Mm. Are you afraid of dying or are you more afraid to die not having done everything you wanted to do? That's, that's what I realized. I know we're getting to this at the end of the interview, but that's what I realized was a big motivating factor for me. I didn't want to die knowing that I didn't do something because I was afraid of doing it. Clifton is just so smart and he has a lot more to say. And I really urge you to listen to the entire reinvention episode. If you're at that place in life right now, or you know someone who is because both Clinton and Eddie offer tremendous ideas that a whole lot of people already have found really, really helpful. Next up, the episode TV Music Moments, combining two of my passions. And the topic here is how music is used in important ways in some of the greatest TV series ever. The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, The Wire, Mad Men, The Americans, on and on. And the perfect guy to lead up this episode is my buddy Brian Koppelman. First of all, he's a true savant in music. That's where his career began. But he's also an accomplished TV writer and producer and director, co-creator, showrunner, co-writer of the brilliant series Billions on Showtime. I could play you a scene from one of my shows or anybody's show. I could play you as, uh, and if we just watch the scene, uh, uh, someone's sitting there and a camera's pushing in on them and there's no score, no music playing, you're asking yourself, what's happening? What am I being told? What, the moment that I put the right, and, and if I put one kind of track, you would feel one way and another kind of track, you'd feel another way. And then when I found the right track, you would feel exactly the way the story wants you to feel. Um, and I've seen it over and over again. That's why David and I, my, my creative partner, David Levine, and I spend so much time thinking about the music in our show. But we were talking this morning about The Crown. I don't know if you and Jen, how far into mm -hmm. The Crown you are. I love that show. And Amy and I were watching episode five. No, I think, uh, sorry, earlier in the season. This was episode three, maybe. Um, I'm not going to spoil the show, but a bad thing happens to an older character. And, uh, but right before that, for like the three minutes before, you see some scenes that are very prosaic scenes, like where just people are doing very mundane things. But there's this music building as we cut from uh, scene to scene to scene. And, and Amy and I looked at each other on, our, on the couch and we were like, what the fuck is going on here? Because it was building in a way that, that just let us know. And it was the way it was cut too, but, but the music was pushing in a way where it was like, 
okay, something is about to happen here. And it wasn't pushed so much because if you use that, do that badly, you as the viewer get annoyed and tired with it. But if you do it right, suddenly you start feeling in your body a question before your brain even asks the question. I mean, that's the thing, Chris, if you get to do this stuff, and I'm sure it's the same with David Chase. I know it is in The Sopranos and Matt Weiner um, on, on, on his show. Um, Mad Men, you are lucky enough, if you're lucky enough to get to mm. make stuff like this, you want every moment to just be, have maximum emotional impact and you want to empty the toolkit. You know, you just want to leave it all out there and, and you want to just put every last bit of thought, meaning, effort into it. And your record collection is just about the best weapon you have. Once you've cast it correctly with an incredible group of actors and, you know, you've the best craftspeople at every post, the last tool you have, the thing at the end is your record collection and your composer's score. And those are unbelievably valuable tools and and we just try to get the most we can out of them brian and i also got talking about something that's almost an endangered species these days the tv theme song man i mean you just cannot underestimate the power of the theme song of the sopranos I mean, talk about something that just immediately, if I put that on right now, it would change your state. Your state would just change yep. if we put the Sopranos theme song on. But all you had, you hear the first jingle and you know, woke up this morning, got yourself a gun. But, but how does it come to pass that that is seen as a genius choice? That song was written about a woman who, I think she killed her husband, as a female empowerment song. It had nothing to do with gangsters, right? right? But, but you put that, that song I get, I get, got goosebumps just thinking about that because that's yes. how much the Sopranos meant, you know? No, to me too, man. And, 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 and if you think of like, yes, David Chase used Bob Dylan's songs. He used great, great songs and to incredible effect. But right from the beginning, got myself a gun. You are in the feeling of the track too, which works like score as Tony's driving and beginning his day through that toll booth. Um, you are locked in man and you're locked in and identified with tony and it just starts you going now among his many projects brian also has an excellent podcast the moment and he's been very helpful in helping me get this podcast going we're talking about this topic and he suggested getting the artist's perspective and how music is used in tv and so i reached out to our mutual friend mike mills of rem one of my favorite all-time bands. I've known Mike a long time. Usually we talk sports. He's a huge fan of the Georgia Bulldogs, his alma mater, and the Atlanta Braves. But here we finally got a chance to talk music, and I got to kind of geek out on my passion for REM songs. And when you create something that does feel personal and in some ways has been described as deliberately non-commercial, and then it sends tens of millions and wins awards and is, is used um, in all kinds of films and TV shows... Um, what do you feel then? I mean, it's, it's gone beyond this little boat that you put in the water and it's drifted around the world um, through the currents, you know? Well, you know, it's, it's, the thing is, once you release a song, it's not yours anymore. I mean, it belongs to everyone. 
to a degree. And it's theirs to interpret. It's theirs to ignore. It's theirs to listen to as much as or as little as they want to. So, um, you know, and then there are always misinterpretations. You know, the most famous one, the one I love, uh, which was one of our early hits, it's not a love song in the real sense of that. It's a, it's a bitter song of, of stalking, uh, you know, not of stalking, but a kind of a rejection. Um, and it's, it's really dismissive, but unless you listen closely, you won't know that. So it was always really fun to do shows and, and we start playing that song and couples would put their arms around each other and hug each other and dance and kiss. And it's like, but, but really what, what the guy is saying, he's telling the girl to piss off or the, whoever it is. What do you sing? A simple prop to occupy my time. That sort of, uh, tw- that turns the thing around one. It gets, it gets worse because the last line is another prop to occupy my time. So, I mean, it, it starts bad and gets worse. But that's the kind of song that would be used in a film or a TV show because people would latch on to the one I love. And that, that's yes. what they want to latch on. And then, then you find out, wait a second, this has nothing to do with what you were trying to say. And that's fine. It's fun to be subversive. Mike and I also talked about how R.E.M. made two very funny, very unlikely appearances in two very iconic television series, Sesame Street and The Simpsons. I'll tell you the, the story about how that came about was, was really fun. We were filming a video uh, at some warehouse in Brooklyn and nearby Mike Scully, uh, one of the executive producers of the Simpsons was filming an NRBQ documentary. Uh, now, Peter and I especially love NRBQ as does Mike Scully. So I ran into him in the hallway and we got to talking and he said, well, look, will you guys, you know, talk to me for my NRBQ documentary? I said, sure, if you put us on the Simpsons. <laughs> and he, he said, okay. So that's, that's how we got on there. And, uh, and you know, and, and that's still... You had you know, no intention of that actually happening, right? You were just Oh, no, I was dead serious about it. Oh, you thought, I, you I, thought I, they might happen? Absolutely. I would, that was a deal I was making. I said, yes, we'll do, the, we'll do an interview for you for your NRBQ documentary, but you got to put us on The Simpsons. Um, and that was, you know, that's a career highlight to, to be in there uh, uh, doing, those, doing the voiceover with a couple of folks from the cast, uh, but you're kind of the butt of the joke. You guys allowed yourselves to be kind of your, your reputation for embracing environmental causes. He was, Homer was kind of making fun of that. And then Michael ends oh, yeah. up very mad in the scene. So, so you, weren't, you weren't averse to sort of poking fun at yourselves there. You have to. If, if you'd say the trouble is, uh, you know, rock and roll is littered with the carcasses of, of musicians who took themselves too seriously. It's, 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 it's off-putting. It's distasteful. Uh, it's like, you know, Peter used to say this thing and I don't, it's not entirely true, but to a point it is just like rock and roll is a joke. And if you don't get the joke, then you're the butt of the joke. But, you know, and I believe that, but I also believe that rock and roll can save your life. It literally. And so it's, it's one of those things that, that is in a way, one of the most important things in the world. And in a way is not one of the most important things in the world. And you have to be able to embrace both sides of that coin to really understand it. Is there a separation when you create the music and then you appear in, in shows like The Simpsons? And we haven't even gotten into Sesame Street yet when you guys are, are doing a, a kind of an altered version of, of Shiny Happy People, which is a very unexpected REM pop-up at that time. I mean, it, it's those are the arenas when you can sort of, hey, we get it. We are in on the joke. We're not the butt of it. Absolutely. And, and again, that also depends on the song. I mean, Shiny Happy People was a song. It was basically written for kids. It's like Stand. You know, people go, oh, those are stupid, silly R.E.M. songs. Well, yeah, they're for children. 
You know, I mean, adults can enjoy them too, but they're primarily aimed at kids. Look at the videos. You know, those are, you know, those are to appeal to children and that's, and that's great. So why the heck not do Furry Happy Monsters on Sesame Street, which was, I think, still one of the most popular things we ever did. I get people still coming up to me on the street saying how much they still watch that with their kids, as, even as they're, and their kids are showing it for their kids now. You know, it's, it's just, it, it was such a, it had such a long life. It's incredible. It's amazing. The landscape has changed so much, but there's so many usages for songs now that they do have a second and third and even a fourth life sometimes when people become aware of them that were way too young to hear them the first time. Have you ever come across some usage when you weren't, eh, I'm not, I'm not thrilled by the way that that's been interpreted, either the visual images it's been married to or, or the way it's used in the plot. Is there any example when you think, ah, eh, okay, we did it. We got to put our money where our mouth is, but I'd rather not see our song kind of used that way. I was a little ambivalent about Independence Day. I think, I think End of the World is in Independence Day. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big, dumb blockbuster movies are, they're a little too lowest common denominator sometimes for feeling really good about it. On the other hand, uh, it, it worked, it fit. Uh, the money wasn't bad. I won't lie about that. Um, but but again, it's, it's a huge movie. A lot of people were going to see that movie. And at that point, it's not about selling the music. It's just about having it heard. You know, being a part of the zeitgeist or whatever is, is, is nice. And um, I don't know. There are a lot of good things that come of that. You're, you're part of the culture. It means you're going to last longer. More people will have heard of you. It gives you more freedom to do other things. Um, and, you know, and again, I just like the fact that in 10 years, somebody's going to watch uh, Independence Day and go, holy crap, there's an REM song. Uh, or what is that song? I got to go find that song. It's, it's just, it's, it's a little Easter egg that sneaks up on people sometimes. That's another song, obviously, that's been downloaded and listened to a lot because of what we're going through. But it's pretty amazing that one artistic creation there that's few minutes long can be used from Independence Day to Big Bang Theory to the film Buffy the Vampire Slayer to I mean, the, the Simpsons we talked about. That's, that, that's one piece of music interpreted that many different ways. Yeah. Oh, and that's, and that's the, the, the great thing about music is you, you can, it, it means what you think it means. Mike is such a wise and thoughtful guy on lots of topics. It was fun to hear his thoughts on music. This episode is an absolute must for fans of R.E.M. or fans of how TV shows use music, period. Next up, the latest in a subset of episodes on this podcast, Storytelling at the 19th Hole with the ultra-talented Mike Tirico. Now, we had a lot of ground to cover in a 30-year friendship in TV sports broadcasting. We recorded this just before Mike went off to Tokyo to host the Olympics for NBC, but we begin with the story from another global sporting event, the World Cup in Brazil. Hey, the true highlight of the, the World Cup in Brazil, though, I think came when we were hanging out in the bar of one of the lobby hotels there, the, the Copacabana Beach, and my wife Jennifer had the idea. You brought back the, the old days of Sports Center. Why not text her old friend, long-lost Craig Kilborn? Because <laughs> we, had, we, had, we weren't sure what happened to Craig. He kind of went away and went underground and we hadn't heard from him. And it's one of those, after a couple of drinks and you're, you're kind of euphoric to be there. She has the idea and lo and behold, you do it. And he responds. I, don't, I mean, from 
the other world where he'd been spending the last few years. And it follows with connect in touch, follow him now on Instagram. And uh-huh. every day, every day there's something good. There's Craig enjoying, enjoying life. But the picture that he sent you, the picture that he texted, not only did he text, but he texted you a picture, which was a precursor of his genius Instagram feed where he's very much in character, this kind of like cocktail swirling (laughs) Renaissance man. Here we are in freaking Rio. That's right. And Craig Kilborn emerges from a secrecy to like send oh. you this text of enjoying a cocktail. And you, you were so you came and knocked. We had, we had parted ways. The night was <laughs> over. You came down the hallway, knocked on the door. Like, I got to see a picture this from Killiborn. You killed her. <laughs> that is right. And that, that was, uh, that, that's the funny part. I think for all of us over time is we were, we were there and you're still there at ESPN. Obviously we were there at such a really cool time. The talent that was found <clears throat> was, truly unique and everybody couldn't be a Chris Berman copycat, but a lot of people figured out what their lane was with their personality. What Oberman and Patrick did was brilliant, was absolutely brilliant. There's no way though that Chris Myers and I could follow and pull that off. So you kind of did what was in your personality and what was different. And, and that, that was, um, I, I think, I think it helped us all learn how you had to have a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of every club in the bag that you could play but you had to have your own swing. You couldn't copy Berman's swing. You couldn't be Oberman. You just can't, you just can't do that. And <clears throat> that to me is what helped our whole generation succeed and thrive. We, we would be different people in different times like now, but for what it was back then, where I think we're all blessed that we not only had the place, but we all had each other to learn from, to push each other, to, take the best of and put it in the way I do things. And I, I think that's why so many of us are lucky enough to still be doing this 25, 30 years after we started. Have you had a chance to ever reflect what you've been able to do? You've been able to, to cover golf in the era of Tiger, NFL in the era of Brady and Manning and Breeze and so many others, Kobe and LeBron calling yeah. NBA. I don't know. I don't think you were a little bit yeah. too late for Jordan. Jordan had retired by the time Miss- you got there. Yeah, but, I actually got the back end, the back end of Jordan, Jordan two in Washington. Okay, so well then college I, not, Jordan Washington game. I consider but, his career right. to end when he was a bull, but uh, yeah, I know, I know. but <laughs> yeah, we talked about in Serena yes. and Roger yes. and Rafa in tennis. Yep. I mean, just the gratitude that I'm sure we share for being around and being able to see that and never taking that for granted for a day. Yeah. I, you're right. Uh, do count myself lucky for I just the I just scratched the surface, man. You've done there's other things you've done. Yeah. I just named just no, the no, name no, force no, no. Yeah. Ten ten thousand percent. I'm with you. And, and what it what it made me think of right away was uh I get asked often what players do you like to talk to? Or what players are the best in meetings, right? And I, I say to folks that my favorite meetings with players, there's some that you enjoy, but the meetings that are the ones that you walk away and go, okay, that that guy's wired differently. That woman is different than the others who I cover is that all these great athletes see sports to me differently than the others do. In addition to their physical abilities, which are extraordinary, their minds are powerful, uh, very broad and wide in the scope of what they take in and their ability to take the mental and match it with the physical. Like if you, if you ask me what, what football meetings do you look forward to uh, for NFL games? Peyton when he was playing, Brady, Rogers, 
Breeze, like th- those guys, you just have a different quality of meeting with them. It's because they mentally do it so well. And I, it was the same thing we, uh, God rest his soul, Kobe's last game was a game that it was uh, me, Hubie, and Lisa Salters got to call in mm-hmm. L.A. And Kobe sat with us for a half hour. Ed Fibershoff was our producer. Eddie had covered Kobe all the way back in his uh, early days. Uh, we sat with, with Kobe for like 25 to 30 minutes and talked about career, life, everything else. And he really, he, he said, I don't know what I have in me tonight. I don't, you know. And he ended up having an incredible game that, you know, you were reminded the mentality of the athlete and their mental approach to it. He knew exactly how much he had in the tank. And if he got going, he could, he could get to what that he very 50, last drop. He had 50 or 60 in the tank, right? What he- <laughs> yes, he did. Exactly. Exactly. Hubie said, you know, I, I, had a, I, had a, I had a dream. I was shaving. I remembered my dream. I, 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 thought, I thought Kobe could have like a 50, 60-point kind of game. And he threw that out like in the first quarter. And Kobe's going through. I told you, I told you. It was it was one of those. But it's the athletes, the, the athletes who are so smart, and mm-hmm. that's what I've learned to appreciate about LeBron. You talk to LeBron about basketball. Oh my gosh, it, it's a master class. He sees so much. That's why he's an unbelievable assist guy and rebounder, and he's made so many teams so much better over the years. And that's what uh, I feel so fortunate is not just being able to call the events that these folks have been involved with but to hear what makes them so great. And it's an understanding as <clears throat> the, uh, the axes cross between ability and mental acuity. The greats are able to maximize it longer because they know how to get the most out of their body. They know how to handle situations. Like Tiger winning the Masters in 2019 at 44, uh, 43 at that, that time, excuse me. I mean, that, that was stunning given what he had gone through physically. But Tiger's mental approach around Augusta and on the second nine on Sunday, when they got to the 12th and all the other guys hit it in the water, and Tiger ended up over the bunker, middle of the green, made three, and he just played smart golf while everybody else tried to go win the Masters. And his mental ability is the reason he won that Masters. And just to be able to tap into that briefly every once in a while, is what I take away from the best of the best in this era of great athletes. Much more on the episode with Mike Tirico on the early days together at ESPN and also the great events that Mike has covered. Next up, twin episodes in season two that we call Prowess and Perseverance. They focus on complicated issues that both Jennifer and I find incredibly important, how to help and support our combat veterans. We had two brave, tremendous guests, ABC News correspondent Bob Woodruff, who was nearly killed in a roadside explosion while in bed with troops in Iraq, and Marine Corporal Keontae Story, who lost part of his leg while on patrol in Afghanistan. Keontae went on to become a sprinter, a marathoner, and a mountain climber. His story of trying to make the final push to the summit of Antarctica's highest mountain, Mount Vinson, is incredibly compelling and emotional. I got really tired and I started to doubt my abilities because it became harder and harder. Like as we're getting to the base of the summit um, or right before the last push for the summit. So we had to rest camp and then wake up early that morning and push to the summit. But that was where it kind of kicked in for me where I was just like, you know, is, can I do this? And, and it was 
kind of a moment for me where I looked at it and I was just like, Hey, I made it this far. I'm proud of myself. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of myself making this far. I never thought I'd make it this far on a mountain. This is kind of cool. Um, like if I couldn't go any further, I'm still happy that I did this, but I don't ever half-ass anything. <laughs> and so it was just like, nah, I can't settle for that. We're getting to the summit. And it got to a point where there was a section of it where I was just like, I, I really don't know. Like, kind of like that marathon field too, where I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I truly don't know because if I get to a certain point, we have to get back down. You know, there's no vehicle coming to get me. There's no helicopter that's going to airlift me down. There's, that's just not an option here at all. So I kept telling myself, I was like, what do you, what do we do? And I'm like, well, we don't quit. So we're getting to the summit. And the only thing I can do is try to find motivation. And I always go back to this because it, it makes me laugh, but I always thought of my Marines because I had the Marine Corps flag in my backpack. And that's what, that was another motivation of mine was getting that to the summit. But I always thought about my, my Marines, how they would laugh at me because I don't like the cold and being an African-American, like on the coldest mountain, on the, in the coldest place on earth. It was just like, oh, there's so many jokes, so many jokes. I just kind of laughed in my own head and just kind of took those names and the people that I remember um, who did pass away and even took, you know, the names of my friends that they're still alive um, and kind of just envisioned them like walking next to me or hiking with me. And we're just kind of like laughing. Um, and it, 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 it gave me that feeling of being back during those hard times where like, I would even question the Marine Corps, like, can I do this? And I find my way to push through. And that was my motivation was doing it for them doing it for me, but then also the other piece of that puzzle that clicked as I was walking up there was like, I'm doing this for other veterans who are wounded as well, who are in the hospital, who didn't think that, you know, who, who, who don't know what's beyond or what's at the scope of their limit. Like when I saw Mark Zambon, I didn't think that was an option for me, you know? So to me, that was motivation. I want to be that motivation for other Marines, other people. And so I was just like, no, this is, this is I want to, I this is going to be something bigger than me. Um, but this is it's still a challenge for me. Um, and so as I'm going up to the summit, um, I, I, you know, it's funny because actually Tim, he kind of hit it for me for a while. He didn't want to tell me where the summit was, even though it's like you're running out of space where to go. Uh, <laughs> but we get to the summit and I just break. I, I am truly in awe and just, just, it was a surreal experience that I actually did it um, with all the doubt that kind of came in my mind and all the questions that I had, I was actually on top of Mount Vincent and the, the icing on the cake. And this is kind of another great story is that I got to actually call my mom on that mountain. The biggest, the biggest accomplishment I feel I've ever done was being on that mountain. And I got to call the biggest inspiration, my biggest motivation, um, you know, as soon as I got there. So to me, it was like the, the highlight of all my athletic feats. Uh, so that to me was a great feeling. If you to reflect back now, more than a decade, that, that September morning when part of your right leg was taken from you, how would you say that incident made you grow as a person? What did you gain from that experience from having part of your leg taken away? 
being injured is honestly one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I, I have to be honest with that because I've done so much. I've done so much in my life that I would have never thought was possible. And finding myself through these challenges because of my injury just to me has made me a better person. Like if I had to say, if you were to ask me and then I wasn't injured at all, where would I be? I'd probably say back home in Stockton where I was, you know, my hometown might be in school, might not be in school. You know, I might, you know, I might have like 10 kids right now. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't truly answer that because I truly, I, I didn't live the best life. Like being injured at this point, I've lived a lot of my best life that I would have never dreamt possible. And so my injury has really pushed me, but it also put, what made me want to push myself to be better and help others because I feel like everyone should experience living life and not and not being stuck in place like you can be when you get injured. You can get stuck in place and think, oh, life's over. Life's not great anymore. You know, you can be depressed. You can really spiral downwards. But I really continue to do these things to show other people. They're challenges for me but to show other people that you can do it, whether you're missing limb or you're not, we all, we're all human. We all go through something mentally. You know, we all have a brain as far as I'm aware, um, but we're, so we all go through something, you know, upstairs, you know, maybe it's a hard day. Maybe you're going through a tough time. I, I, I want to show that, you, you know, even when times get hard, you can get through it. You just, you just really got to keep moving forward we have a choice in the matter of how we go about situations in our lives, how we, you know, choose to make a plan, take action or not do something. It's all a choice, but that's, that's really the reality of you being in charge of your own life is that you have a choice. Even if you feel like someone else is dictating it, you have your own, you have a choice, you know, you have a choice of how you go about handling it really. Now, like Keontae's story, Bob Woodruff spoke with great candor and great detail about the day that his life path was changed suddenly and forever. He talked about the dark times, the despair and the fear, but also about ways in which his near-fatal head injuries changed him in ways that he could not have imagined. My little daughter, Nora, I've got twin adorable little girls, and they were five years old when I was hit. And about you know, six months after I came back, still had all of these, you know, wounds all over my body and I couldn't remember a lot of things. Um, and she, my daughter asked me, uh, she asked, she was talking to my wife, Lee, and she says, mom, you know, uh, dad's head seems to have that because they cut off part of my skull. He's, you got that dented head. And mom says, don't worry, that's, they're going to put that skull back on. It'll be fun. And mommy's got all of these scars all over his back. Don't worry, sweet, that'll get better. And my dad's got all these little pieces of metal and rocks you know, in, implanted in the left part of his jaw. And she, she says, don't worry, those popping out one at a time, that's gonna be fine. And she said, you know, mom, no, the, I think my dad loves me even more than he did before. 
Now, whether that was an expression of it, um, maybe it indicated something. I felt so lucky to be alive. So that was a positive part, I think. I think maybe in some ways, maybe I did change personality-wise. I don't know. I, uh, I'm sure there's always with depression, there's all sorts of snaps that happen. This is not a kumbaya story. But there are some things that maybe are better about me. Bob says that his injuries didn't just change his path. It changed his purpose. Along with his wife, Lee, they formed the Bob Woodruff Family Foundation, an incredibly important nonprofit organization focusing on veterans' issues. The organization is known for thinking outside the box, filling in the gaps between government programs, being flexible and adaptable as the landscape changes. Much of the focus now is on the crisis of food insecurity for vets. His voice is both passionate and pragmatic. I just want to make sure that people know, though, too, when I talk about the wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, this is, you know, one one quarter maybe of those who serve that have gone through something like this. You know, most of them have come back, you know, healthy, you know, and, and the last thing they want to think is that we all think that uh, they were at a war and they're wounded. and they're, they're not, you know, able to do the same as they did before. I just want to make sure that that's that that's clear. But those that did have something that happened over there. It's been really double, a double whammy. Listen, I mean, re- respect and congratulations and all of that are, are really good for, for everybody. But yeah, I mean, I guess they just don't, don't assume that there's something, you know, some mental sure. issue that they had or physical thing that's, you know, that's invisible. But yes, I think, yes, we make sure you look because this is one, again, that they don't want to come back and admit. So if you do notice something, then try to do whatever you can to convince them to seek some help or for that. Uh, but I do talk to a lot of uh, veterans and they love it when people ha- you know, raise the flags and say, thank you for serving our country and giving them the ability to get on the plane before the rest and all that. But some also say, well, you know what, just let us kind of just, just kind of go into this different world, civilian world that we're now back at, you know, I'm not sure we, I couldn't even tell you the percentage who love that and those who don't really want that. What they really want is they want to get the job. They want a job. You know, they want to have their life better and not just somebody shouting out and say, you know, you served. Thank you so much, but I'm not going to do anything more than that. And I'm not going to do anything else to help you. Uh, The big thing is not just to say or to show how much you love them. It's really more about doing something, you know, behind the curtain to do something for them. I think it's a motivation for Americans to do something for them because there's a point where this system may not continue anymore. If it looks like we're not going to really treat them with dignity, those that do volunteer to take the risks, whether it's in the hospital or it's in the sands of the war, you know, if we, if that doesn't happen, if we just stop supporting those that are still have needs after serving, then maybe the next system will be a draft again. You know, then we will, people are not going to want to volunteer. And therefore, we're going to have to make your grandchild do it instead, you know, even though he doesn't want to or doesn't have the ability to do so. So I think there's a there's a motivation to to continue to do something for the for the military if you can. I'm so grateful for Bob's friendship and for his example of resilience and generosity. I invite you to learn more about the Bob Woodruff Family Foundation. Now, the final episode of season two also focuses on family 
three generations of Van Winkles who created, rescued, and resurrected the family whiskey business that now produces one of the most coveted bottles of spirits on the planet. It's Kentucky Derby Day 1935, and the bizarre chapter in American history known as Prohibition has just ended. A whiskey salesman, Julian Van Winkle, merges two smaller companies and forms the Stitzel Weller Distillery, not far from Louisville. The man's preferred recipe for bourbon is a little different. He likes wheat as the secondary grain to corn, not rye. The man knows what he wants. He demands quality. He says, we will make fine bourbon at a profit if we can, at a loss if we must, but always fine bourbon. The company flourishes. He passes it along to his son, Julian Jr., But then, tough times. Sales drop. Bourbon becomes uncool to drink in the 60s and 70s, and Julian Jr. has to sell. Eventually, his son, Julian Van Winkle III, Pappy's grandson, takes over the company. And with some help and some good fortune, but mainly just plenty of hard labor, stubbornness, and faith, he rebuilds the Van Winkle brand and reclaims the family legacy. It's an honor and a lot of fun to have Julian as my guest on this podcast and his story of how Pappy Van Winkle became one of the most coveted bottles of spirits in the world is really incredible. Uh, it was it was stressful. You can ask uh, ask my wife Sissy and our and our children even. Um, you know, I don't know um, what they thought of what I was doing back then, um, but I was just hanging on with my fingernails, and it's the only thing I really knew how to do. Um, so I wouldn't, uh, and I knew it was good, a good product. I mean, I knew damn well is a good product. So, um, I just was going to go down with the ship, so to speak, if it didn't work out, but, um, kept trying and trying and trying. And, and I, you know, I am stubborn. I'm, I'm going to ride this baby all the way down, down to the grave or up to the, to the heavens. But, um, it, it luckily worked out with a lot of help from a lot of people as I talked about in the book, but it's, um, it was, you know, it's, it's do or die, but I believed in it, which is the main thing. These days, Pappy Van Winkle bourbon is produced at the Buffalo Trace Distillery. We'll get into all that with Julian, why Pappy's is so delicious and why it's so damned hard to find. Even in Kentucky, where as legend has it, there are two barrels of bourbon for every person. Also bring in some great stories of that episode, my good buddy and the superb writer, Wright Thompson, who wrote the book, Pappy Land, a story of family, fine bourbon, and things that last. Well, that's it for our season two highlight show. Hope you had a quarter of as much fun listening to it as we had putting it together. Now, we're excited about the return of this podcast with season three, brand new episodes. We're going to launch with the return of full-fledged football. Not the games on the field, but all the things that surround college football that make it great. The top tailgating scenes in the country, the best bands in the land back performing in stadiums, and the mascots on the sidelines. Got some unbelievable stories about some very famous mascots. Football is back. This episode is going to be a real celebration of that, and it's coming very, very soon. So keep an eye out for it. In the meantime, I invite you to subscribe, leave feedback on my Instagram, and get ready for season three. I'll talk to you very soon.